Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Episode 6 of Journeys into Whiteness. I'm your tour guide, your host, Jimmy Lincoln. Thank you once again for joining me if you are a repeat listener. And if this is your first time, thanks for checking me out. I hope you like it. I hope you stick around. Maybe check out episodes one through five if this is your first time with us. Because it all kind of builds. But either way, glad you're here with me today. Glad you're willing to sit down and engage in some of this work we're going to do. As always, I hope that our journey today is fruitful. I'm sure, like always, it'll go in a million different directions. But I hope all those directions lead to a meaningful conclusion. Hope to keep you entertained. And I hope above all else to maintain a bit of clarity. Because I have realized that as I endeavor to keep these conversations authentic and casual and transparent, that there at times is a stream of consciousness flow to what I'm doing here. And while that's nice, because it, I think, adds to the authenticity and the honesty and the truth that I'm trying to get at, I do recognize that if you're on the other end of this podcast, the listening end, that sometimes I can take you into the brambles and the weeds that we can get ourselves lost. So I will endeavor as much as possible with my loquaciousness to keep us maybe not on a single path, but to keep us on paths that are recognizable and all tie in together. Like always, I appreciate your comments and your critiques. Each episode, I get more and more feedback from listeners. And what that does is allow me to kind of share, not kind of, but to definitely share that feedback in future episodes so that it's not a monologue that we're having, but rather a, a giant conversation on this topic of whiteness and white supremacy and race, and racism, and all of those topics that have so much impact on our lives, whether we want to admit it or not. So, episode six. As always, I'm excited about today's topic. We're going to go back in time once again, back to my elementary days, elementary slash middle school days, so I'm fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. And I don't necessarily, today's episode is a little different than some others because there isn't a single event that I'm going to focus on today. But I'm going to focus on the idea of how white privilege gave me many, many benefits as a young student, many benefits that I didn't recognize at the time, that I didn't recognize for much later, and I've only, upon reflection, come to recognize as an adult. And some of those benefits are practical and concrete. But I think the most significant benefits that we're going to discuss today are a lot less tangible and they're more in the realm of psychological benefits, social capital benefits, perhaps you might want to label them. So that's where we're headed today. But, and by now, if you're a repeat listener, you know that we're going to do some housekeeping. We're going to do some reflecting back on earlier episodes. I'm going to share some of what y'all have shared with me about 
earlier episodes and about your own experiences so that we can ensure that this is, as I mentioned just a second ago, a conversation much more than simply a monologue or a soliloquy. So let's start by looking back briefly to episode four. Episode four, as you may or may not recall, was the episode where I focused on an incident that occurred when I was playing peewee football as a youngster. And peewee football in Harrisonburg, Virginia, entailed youngsters from the ages eight, nine, and ten. And I don't know why I keep saying youngster, but simply saying that word makes me feel like I'm about 112 years old. But episode four focused on a peewee football practice that occurred when I was either eight or nine, I believe. I don't believe it was my last year on the team, and I don't really know why I don't believe that, but you know how memory is. You just have these these strong feelings. And this incident was was pretty straightforward, pretty simple. One of my black teammates was running laps with some other teammates of mine. I, at the time, was not running laps. I believe the defense was being punished for some miscue or something. Who knows? And so they were running laps around the practice field. And my black teammate, I think my only black teammate on the team at the time, or one of my one of my very few black teammates, maybe there were two, maybe three, but not very many at all. And recall, that's because Harrisonburg's youth sports at the time, and possibly still now, I don't know now, but at the time, were divided geographically. So that if you lived in one area of town, you played on one football team. If you lived in another area of town, you played on another football team much like the summer camp program was divided geographically, much like the schools were divided geographically. And I don't think it takes a genius to recognize that in a country with centuries-old legacy of residential segregation, that when you choose, even if it's just for what appears to be benign reasons, to divide programs geographically in your city or town, that what you're all often going to do is reinforce racial segregation, residential racial segregation. So that's why my team was probably 95% white. Back to this practice, my black teammates leading the pack. I overhear my white football coach, the head coach, speaking to one of his assistants, who was also white. And he referred to my black teammate, who was leading the pack, as running as fast as a deer or running like a deer. And then mentioning that if only that young man could get his head out of his ass, then we'd be okay. And we explored all of the biases, implicit and otherwise, that went into a statement like that. And I talked about how a statement like that is illustrative of decades, if not centuries, of a racialized view of not only black bodies, but black minds and black attitudes and black personalities. And one of my listeners reached out to me. And this listener had a very personal connection to the story. This listener was on that football team. He was a fellow teammate. So now, just to catch you up, we've got three teammates in the story. We've got myself, the quote-unquote neutral observer. We've got my black teammate leading the pack, 
of runners and being referred to as both an animal and as someone with such a horrible attitude as an eight or nine-year-old or 10-year-old that his head was up his ass. And then we've now got this third teammate, this listener, who chimes in. This third teammate is white, as am I, as most of y'all probably know by now. And he immediately knew who I was talking about in episode four. He then continued to ask me if I could remember if there was any kind of event, any kind of outburst, anything at all, any demonstrative behavior that would have precipitated our white head coach referring to our black teammate in the language that he chose to refer to him in. And the reason my listener asked me this is because he said, to my recollection, and we both not only knew that black teammate as eight, nine, and 10-year-olds, but grew up to know him as adolescents and teenagers and even adults. So we both know this black teenager or black, sorry, black child at the time and now black man. We both know him fairly well. And my listener said, because from what I can remember and what I know now, that young man was always very shy. Always pretty reserved, at least around adults, at least in situations like a football practice or in a classroom. Always fairly introverted. And I responded, I said, that's my recollection as well. And so it dawned on me that maybe in episode four, I didn't make it very clear to my audience. But that as far as I can recall, no enormous event, nothing in any way out of the ordinary that would have precipitated our young black teammate being referred to as having his head in his ass. In other words, he didn't curse out the coach. He didn't get in a fist fight. He didn't storm off the practice field. Nothing that maybe might lead our coach to speaking to him in such negative terms. Now, even then, speaking about a nine or a 10-year-old or an eight-year-old as having their head up their ass is extremely problematic, even if you remove race from the equation. But I just thought it was telling, and it was definitely worth sharing with you guys, how this young black teammate of ours was referred to as having his head up his ass, when the reality was maybe he was a little sullen, maybe he was a little quiet, maybe he was a little less animated or vocal than the coach would want him to be. And that alone, those very understandable characteristics for any child would lead him, because of his blackness, I I contend, would lead him to be labeled as someone with an attitude problem, would lead him to be labeled as a young child who had his head up his ass. And so when that white teammate of mine reached out to me after episode four and shared his perception of our black teammate, I thought it was important if I pass that on to you guys. Just to add some more detail, some more nuance, some more context to the story. Now, episode four also led me to questioning how I view black athletes today. And I talked about specifically Cam Newton, the New England Patriots quarterback, 
used to be quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. Sports fans who are listening, I'm sure you're very aware of him. He's very well-known, former NFL MVP, very successful college quarterback, has had a very successful pro career. But he's somebody who, from a distance, admittedly, I have not always been fond of. I haven't always liked his behavior on the sidelines of some of his team's games. I haven't always liked his behavior during press conferences after some of his team, after some of his his team's games as well, especially losses. I thought at times he maybe displayed a lack of leadership. I thought at times he was a little pouty, a little petty. And so I talked about in episode five how I may be, without even having realized it, honestly, without even having thought about it too deeply until episode four, how I may be repeating some of the same patterns that my Pee Wee football coach was repeating. And I didn't necessarily come to any hard and fast conclusions. And those of y'all who've listened to this podcast know that's not really my goal. But I just mentioned the possibility that I was enacting some racial stereotypes based on implicit biases that I have, that I carry around unknowingly. And one of my listeners, a black woman, reached out to me and she shared that she thought I was being too hard on myself in my self-evaluation of my opinion of Cam Newton. And she's someone who also knows me outside of this podcasting world. And so that probably added some context to her understanding of what I said. And that was her message. And she kind of backed up her message about me being too hard on myself with this notion that she, too, wasn't a big fan of Cam Newton and his attitude or his perceived attitude, I should say. And let me tell you all. How odd. Not odd, that's not the right word. Let me just explain how it felt to hear that from a black woman, because it was a really interesting reaction that I had. My first initial reaction was almost literally probably breathing a sigh of relief. I was so thankful that a third party was giving me their stamp of approval in terms of being non-racist or anti-racist. And that this person was letting me know that it was okay for me to feel the way I felt about Cam Newton. And this person was letting me know that my perception of Cam Newton and his behavior was probably not affected by any implicit biases that I carry. And all my white listeners can understand why I felt that sense of relief. Because even as I'm beginning to recognize that all white people are are enmeshed in systemic racism, And we all perpetuate certain parts of this edifice of white supremacy, whether we want to or not. And therefore, the question isn't so much, am I a racist, but should be rather, how am I racist? Even if I can recognize that intellectually, I can tell you that nobody, or at least nobody I know, I shouldn't say nobody, but the vast majority of people, I think, do not want to consider themselves racist in any way. White people hate hate the idea that they might be racist in any way. 
And so when I had this listener, someone whom I consider a friend, someone who is very thoughtful, not only on sociological topics and historical topics and political topics, but even sports topics. When this listener, when this black woman reached out to me and said, you know what, Jimmy, I think you're being too hard on yourself. My initial reaction was relief. I was off the hook. I was like, sweet. I'm still woke as fuck. Yes. I didn't exactly say that, but I'm not, I'd be lying if I saying it was if I wasn't feeling something along those lines. But then I got to thinking. And that's when it dawned on me that what I was most relieved about or what that gave my relief even more power was not simply that a third party had told me they thought I was being too hard on themselves, but that that third party was a black person. And I realized I was enacting a pattern that white people all over this country, whether they're liberal, progressive, or whether they're conservative, right wing, I was enacting a pattern that white people love to enact. And it's that pattern of seeking out validation from black folks. Seeking black people to tell us that we are not racist or that our society is not racist or that systemic racism isn't real. And although I hadn't sought out that opinion from this person, the fact that a black woman was telling me I was being too hard on myself carried more weight with me. And so now my first initial sense of relief is now being replaced by like a bit of I don't want to say shame, because that's not the right word either, but just a bit of concern. And I felt for a moment, I was like, am I no better than those people on social media who are posting those horrendous Candace Owens videos or those videos from those two brothers whose names I can't recall at the moment, those two twins who mangle history and, and sociology to, to somehow come to the conclusion that America is in no way racist and that we were barely racist to begin with? Am I simply like those white people posting those videos? Am I a little too quick to rejoice and to celebrate and to feel relief in the validation that I get from one single black voice? And the answer is yes, right? If I'm being honest, it's yes. And so I just wanted to share that story. As a way I think of, of, of sharing with my listeners out there today, how as white people living in a world dominated by whiteness and dominated by white supremacy, living in this racialized world that, that almost none of us are raised to recognize, almost none of us as white people are raised to address directly, that we have to just be mindful and thoughtful. And it doesn't mean we necessarily have to have answers or conclusions, at least right away, because I'm still not sure, as I sit here talking to you guys today, if my opinions about Cam Newton are affected by his race or not. And maybe I'll never be able to tease that specific opinion totally out and be able to fully understand the role that race plays in it. But I do think I'm benefiting from asking myself that question. 
And I do think my friends would benefit if the next time we're sitting around debating football in a bar, in someone's living room, in a company's break room, I do think they would benefit if I were to bring that question up, if Cam Newton came up or if some other black quarterback came up or even if some other white quarterback came up who was maybe being given a pass for acting in a way that's very similar to Cam. In short, there's value in asking those questions, even if those questions don't allow us to arrive at concrete answers. Last bit of housekeeping. Back to episode five, because episode five was not mostly about Cam Newton, as you recall. Episode five was the now somewhat infamous accidental blackface episode. The episode where I talked about how me and my little brothers growing up occasionally would dress up for Halloween as hobos, either because we had run out of ideas or because my parents were broke or some combination of those two factors. And I shared with you guys how a key part of our hobo hobo costume was blackface, but accidental blackface. It was supposed to be dirt or grime or something of the such, but it resulted in 90% of our faces being covered in black ash. My dad would burn a cork from a wine bottle, let it cool for a second, and then rub the ash all over our faces. And I'm guessing, and I kind of have memories of this, I think it might have started off with a streak or two of dirt or what was supposed to look like dirt, a streak or two of ash across our faces. But then, because it's fun to play dress up, I think we encouraged him to to basically cover our entire faces so that we walked out of our houses, at least me or one of my brothers at some point in the late 80s and early 90s, dressed like quote-unquote hobos wearing blackface. And that we never, never thought of it as blackface, that I'm pretty sure my parents never thought of it as blackface, but that it was literally at least, still blackface. And that it's only as an adult that I've reflected on how we may have been perceived by the other children in our neighborhood, as well as by the other adults who saw us. And I've talked about especially how my brother, who's in a relationship with a black woman, how she stumbled upon some family photographs a few years ago and saw a picture of him in his hobo costume all rearing and ready to go, wearing blackface and how they had to have a bit of a conversation. Man, I wish I'd have been a fly on the wall in that room, especially like the first 30 seconds, right? I'm almost laughing, but that shit ain't funny either because that had to be terrifying for her. A mixture of like terror and humor is probably what made up that entire conversation. But that was episode five, me describing that in my background. And I had a a black listener reach out to me after episode five. And this black woman was talking about how episode five made her think about Halloween from her point of view. And her experiences during Halloween as a child were almost the inverse of mine as a white, as a white child. The sky was the limit for me and my brothers, which makes the blackface hobo outfit even more disappointing, right? Like, we could have been anything. And we end up in my dad's hand-me-down clothes with some cork ash on our face, looking like just some racist broke dudes. 
But here's what she shared with me. And I want to read this to you word for word so, so that there's nothing lost in translation. She said, so think of this. A little girl wants to be Cinderella. But to be honest, since Cinderella was white, what can you do to make you look like her? So you put on your store-bought costume. You go trick-or-treating. And obviously, you were the black Cinderella. You look just like her. And the first question people ask you is, oh, what type of princess are you? And I just need my listeners to hear that. Because I think it's illustrative of how deeply embedded whiteness is in our culture and how white is so often the default for so many things, including fictional characters such as Cinderella. And how that is seemingly innocuous, seemingly neutral, seemingly insignificant. Until you're a young black girl on Halloween, excited, so excited about your costume because everybody knows little kids get hype on Halloween. So excited about your costume and how disheartening it must have been for that listener to be questioned again and again as to which princess she was or what type of princess, to use her words more specifically. What type of princess are you? And not to have people immediately say, oh, what a lovely Cinderella costume. Where are the mice? Where is Prince Charming? Not to get that kind of validation. And it's not to say that little white children aren't disappointed by their costumes. Because I'm sure they are all the time. In fact, I know they are. I'm sure at some point, me and my brothers, especially my youngest brother, because he'd already seen his two older brothers wear this costume, had to be disappointed by the hobo costume, blackface or not. It's not the most original costume when you've seen your two older brothers wear it at least twice before you. And I'm sure there were adults who, when we went and knocked on their door, and we're in the midst of getting fun-sized Kit Kats or whatever we're being placed into our bags. I'm sure there were adults who asked us who we were or what we were supposed to be. That question happens all the time at Halloween. But never was that question tied into something as permanent, as unchangeable as our skin color. So that even if we were unhappy with our costume one year, we could always tell ourselves, well, next year I'll get a better one. I'll come up with a more creative idea. I'll save more money. I'll do X, Y, and Z. But for a little girl to be reminded again and again that she's not really Cinderella and only because she's black, I cannot imagine what that must have felt like. And so had to share that with y'all. Had to share, as I said, kind of that inverse perspective on Halloween with my listeners. Now, today, unfortunately, we're not talking about Halloween because it's a pretty awesome holiday between the candy, the costumes, the pumpkin smashing, the hijinks, the nefariousness. We could talk about a lot. But today I'm talking more generally about the benefits that whiteness gave me as a young student, as a fourth grader, as a fifth grader, as a sixth grader. And not whiteness in kind of a direct sense, 
where I had racist teachers who looked out for me because I was white. But in a much less palpable, much less tangible, but much more powerful sense, I benefited from being white. And there are two, two chief ways that those benefits manifested themselves. One of them was academic. One of them was psychological. So let me talk about the academic benefits of whiteness, first of all. And I'm not even going to get into matters of representation and curricula. Not today, anyway. That'll come up. We've got episodes devoted to that. In fact, episodes seven and eight, we really dig deep into some curricula, specifically social studies curricula in the state of Virginia, specifically textbooks that teach children how to be racist, how to perpetuate a system of whiteness, a system of white supremacy. Because those textbooks, or a specific textbook, was written, in fact, by my grandfather. We'll get into that in episodes seven and eight. And those are going to be some really significant and meaningful episodes for me personally. Some difficult episodes, but some really important episodes. So when I'm talking about how I benefited academically from whiteness in this episode today, I'm not even talking about some of the more obvious ways like curriculum or representation, the fact that almost all of my teachers were white. And trust me, you can do a very cursory amount of research and find out how important it is to have teachers, to have positive role models who look like you. The research on that is quite clear and quite abundant. But that's not what we're talking about. I want to just talk about the fact that both my parents were college educated and that both my parents, therefore, had careers that had consistent, steady hours and how those careers allowed my parents to give me advantages and how my parents' college education and the careers they got with that education were a result, at least in part, on the fact that they were white. My mother read to me daily from the moment I was born, no doubt, until I was probably in second or third grade. Like many mothers out there, like many black mothers, white mothers, Asian mothers, Native American mothers. My mother read to me daily, probably multiple times a day in many cases. But now let's think about how whiteness allowed her to read to me. My mother was a teacher, college-educated professional teacher. She was a kindergarten teacher, meaning she was home every night. She had the exact same hours I did. So she was physically there to read to me. Now, how does that tie into whiteness, you might be wondering? Think about it this way. The fact that she was a college-educated professional with set hours was made more likely by the fact that she was white and by the fact that her parents, my grandparents in this case, were both college-educated. And in fact, her grandparents, my great-grandparents, she had two grandparents who were college-educated. There's a tremendous amount of research that shows that one of the most powerful factors 
in determining if someone is going to go to college and receive a college education is not just socioeconomic status, but familial education levels. So in other words, it's not that there aren't black college educated people out there or aren't black educated professionals out there. There are millions of them. But that my mom's whiteness, especially in Virginia, in the 70s, when she's going to college in the early 70s, made it more likely that she would go to college. And her mother was a teacher before her. So my grandmother was getting a college education, I don't know when, in the early 50s, late 40s. And was able to pass on that culture of college education, that network of we go to college and here's how we do college. She was able to pass that on to my mother who could then read to me every day of my life from the day I was born until I was eight years old. And the reason I'm focusing on reading because there are a lot of studies that show that students or young people who are read to and who read well do well in school beyond whether they have any natural ability or not. And I'm certainly not claiming any of that. What I'm saying is I came into school able to read with a large vocabulary. And I was given that ability, those skills, that background by my mother who had a job that gave her the free time, not only in the evenings and on the weekends, but mind you, every summer to read to me. And one of the reasons she had that job was because she had a college education. And her whiteness made it more likely, especially in the South, especially in the early 1970s, that she would have a college education. So that's one of the small yet significant ways that I benefited as a student from my parents' whiteness and obviously my own whiteness. The fact that it gave them career opportunities and not necessarily money in this case, but gave her the type of career that allowed her the time to then support my education in the best way possible. If my mother had been working shift work, if my mother had been working at a restaurant or a hotel for hourly wages, chances are she wouldn't have had hours that lined up with mine perfectly. She wouldn't have had as much time to read to me. And therefore, my reading may not have developed as strongly as it did. And therefore, I may not have been as prepared to succeed in school as I did. Now, I know someone out there is hearing all of this right now and rolling their eyes and thinking, shit. You act like individual choice had nothing to do with it. And that's not what I'm trying to say at all. Individual choice plays a huge role. My mom still had to choose to become a teacher. My mom still had to choose to spend time with her children. I'm just talking about how whiteness increased the likelihood that she was in a position to make those choices. Because her mother, her father, her grandfather were college-educated professionals who were able to then pass that on to her more easily than if they had not been. And then my mother is in the position to pass that on to me. So that's one of the ways that whiteness benefited me educationally growing up. School was never difficult for me, despite the fact that I was in trouble nonstop, especially in elementary and middle school. I was an energetic, rambunctious, sensitive, extroverted, loudmouth child. 
schools are not built for children like that. Therefore, I found myself in a lot of trouble socially and discipline-wise. However, academically, elementary, middle school, school was relatively easy for me. And a lot of it was because I could read well. And a lot of the reason I could read well was because my mom had the time to read to me. And one of the reasons my mom had the time to read to me is because she was a college-educated professional who had the type of career that gave her set hours that mimicked my school hours. And one of the reasons my mother was a college-educated professional who had those set hours that mimicked my school hours was because of whiteness. And because of this generational legacy of higher education that her parents and grandparents could pass down to her. Now, the second benefit I had because of my whiteness was much more specific. And it's related specifically to my grandfather, a man who I worshipped and adored and still think incredibly highly of today. My mother's father. He was a college professor at James Madison University throughout the 60s, 70s, up until 1984. He was a history professor and, in fact, for, I believe, 19 years, I think from 1965 to 84, he was the head, the chair of James Madison University's history department, or first Madison College, and then it became James Madison University's history department. Okay, great. That might be what you're thinking. Great. But it goes much deeper than that. Because it a few of my teachers either had him as a professor or knew of him as a professor. Specifically, my fourth and sixth grade teachers. Two of my favorite teachers, if I think back on it. And the reason they may have been my favorite might be tied into today's story. Both of those teachers, within the first week or two that I was in their classroom made sure to point out that they knew my grandfather, that they had either taken his class or they were familiar with him and his work. And they made sure to tell me how highly they thought of my grandfather, how highly they thought of him as a college professor, and how pleased they were to have the opportunity to teach me, his grandson. Now think about the psychological power that hearing that has on a young child. Fourth grade is what, nine years old, sixth grade, I was 11, 12. At a very young age, I had the adults who I was going to spend most of my life with that year telling me how excited they were to teach me. And not in a, in, in a generic way, but in a specific way that was tied to my genetics and my DNA, tied to my family tree. Imagine what messages they were sending to me beyond just, hey, we're glad to teach you and we know who your grandfather is and we respect his work and we think he's a great professor. They're implicitly telling me that I belong, that I'm a scholar, that I'm going to be successful in their classes simply because I happen to be related 
to my grandfather, who just happened to be a college professor in the same town that I lived in and that they taught in. Now, once again, you might be asking yourself, how does this relate to whiteness? Think about it. Think about Virginia, where I'm from, Harrisonburg, Virginia. Think about the likelihood of a black person being a college professor at James Madison University in the 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s. The likelihood of that is infinitesimal. In fact, today, in the 21st century at least, maybe not today in, in 2020, but in the 21st century, the research I could dig up shows that across the country, about 5% of the professors at America's colleges and universities are African-American. And that's in the 21st century. Do you think outside of HBCUs, there were black professors in any of Virginia's colleges in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s? And if there were, how many of them there would be? And how likely it would be that one of them would have one of my teachers in his or her class? Statistically, it's almost impossible. So once again, it's not as if these teachers singled me out for favors or special treatment because I was white. That's not the equation. The equation is the other way around. Because I was white, and more importantly in this case, because my entire family tree was white, I was therefore put in a position to be able to be singled out for special treatment and favors. Put in a position where before my teachers even met me, they had positive associations, positive assumptions about who I was and what kind of student I was going to be. And then think about what that does throughout the school year, because I got in trouble in both their classes. I got in a lot of trouble in both their classes. But it's like as a parent, your own children, they're getting in trouble all the time. But because you love them, you interpret their behavior through a lens of positivity and through a lens of love, or at least you should. If not, you need to get your shit together. But I think most parents do that. No matter what our children do, because we love them, we interpret their behavior through those lenses of love and compassion and empathy. So not only did the fact that my fourth and sixth grade teachers know my grandfather give me pride and confidence as a young student and make me feel like I could be successful and make me feel like a classroom was a place where I belong. Not only did all that happen, but I guarantee you that as I acted up throughout those respective school years, that how they reacted to me was affected by their knowledge that I was the grandson of a well-known and well-respected and well-liked college professor whom they both knew. So now they're approaching me from a lens of love and compassion and empathy, which is what all children need, but which, as we all know, and as episode four painfully recounted, not all children receive, especially young black children. 
That's what I mean about the psychological benefits of whiteness. And how the fact that de facto and de jure segregation gave my grandparents and great-grandparents opportunities to educate themselves and to have prestigious jobs. How that fact is still affecting me as a young school child in the 80s and 90s. That's a living example of what people mean when they talk about systemic racism. All those Jim Crow laws, thankfully, are off the books. But if you think for a second that there aren't white people still benefiting from those laws, then you weren't in my fourth grade class or my sixth grade class. Because I can tell you how good it felt, how much pride I took in being welcomed with open arms by two excited teachers because they knew my grandfather and because my grandfather was a scholar. Think about that. Think about the practical advantages I mentioned with my mother being able to read to me as a school teacher. And I hope, because this is kind of a complex topic, I don't, I don't know if I'm fully explaining what I mean about the legacies of familial education. So that's a topic we'll touch on more, especially in later episodes when I talk about my own journeys into college. I hope I was able to make that connection clear. But to me, anyway, as I look back on it, it's those psychological benefits that I got, those, that social capital that I accrued simply from being related to this college professor. And I realize that the vast majority of my white listeners are not the descendants of well-respected, well-known college professors in their hometowns. I get it. But that doesn't mean white privilege isn't real. It just means white privilege is malleable and it looks different for all of us. And for me, I don't think I can even effectively quantify how powerful and how beneficial it was to me as a young learner to walk into two classrooms. And those are only two that I know of. There might have been more that I'm not even aware of. But two that I know of where the teachers were unabashedly enthusiastic about my presence from day one. And that is a psychological benefit. That's a benefit tied to social capital that because of legacies of white supremacy, it is less likely that my black brothers and sisters are going to benefit from. It's less likely that any of my black classmates growing up in Harrisonburg, Virginia, were going to walk into a classroom and have their teachers say how excited they were to meet the grandchild of a famous professor. The chances of that happening were, as I mentioned earlier, nearly infinitesimal, almost impossible. Once again, I thank y'all for giving me part of your day, for giving me some of your time, for giving me two of your ears, hopefully all of your brain and some of your heart. I look forward to reading and hearing about your reactions to today's episode. As I mentioned, the next two episodes are going to be really 
really powerful, really meaningful, and really difficult for me. We're going to dig deeper into my grandfather's legacy. This well-respected college professor, one of the men who I can't think of a single negative thing to say about him personally, but who also single-handedly played a bigger role in building this edifice of white supremacy in the 20th century in Virginia, played a larger role in building that edifice than just about anyone else I can think of, inside or outside of my family. So episodes seven and eight are going to be a lot. So please tune in for those. Please let me know how you feel about this episode. You can reach me, at all, as always, at jameslincoln313 at gmail.com. I thank you all for listening. Thank you for your time and support. Peace and love. I'm out.